Chapter 6 of Man and His Ancestor, A Study in Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Luke Dixie. Man and His Ancestor, A Study in Evolution by Charles Morris. Chapter 6 The Development of Intelligence. The full adoption of the erect attitude gave the ancestor of man an immense motor supremacy over the lower animals, for it completely released his forelimbs from duty as organs of support and set them free for new and superior purposes. In all the animal kingdom below man, there exists but a single form that emulates him in this possession of a grasping organ which takes no part in walking or in other modes of locomotion. This is the elephant, whose nose and upper lip have developed into an enormous and highly flexible trunk with delicate grasping powers. The possession of this organ may have had much to do with the intellectual acumen of the elephant, yet it is far inferior in its powers to the arm and hand of man, while the form, size and food of the elephant stand in the way of progress which might have been made by an animal possessed of such an organ in connection with a better suited bodily structure. For a period of many millions of years, the world of vertebrate life continued quadrupedal, or where a variation from this structure took place, the forelimbs remained to a large extent organs of locomotion. Finally, a true biped appeared. For a period of equal duration, the mental progress of animals was exceedingly slow. Then, with almost startling suddenness, a highly intellectual animal appeared. Thus, the coming of man indicated, in two directions, an extraordinary deviation from the ordinary course of animal development. Both physically and mentally, evolution seemed to take an enormous leap. Instead of proceeding by its usual minute steps, and in the advent of man we have a phenomenon remarkable alike in the development of the body and the mind. So far, our attention has been directed to the evolution of the human body. Now we must consider that of the human mind. In seeking through the animal kingdom for the probable ancestor of man in his bodily aspect, we were drawn irresistibly to the ape tribe as the only one that made any near approach to him in structure. In considering the case from the point of view of mental development, we find a similar irresistible drawing toward the apes as the most spontaneously intelligent of the mammalia. While many of the lower animals are capable of being taught, the ape stands nearly alone in the power of thinking for itself, the characteristic of self-education. Innumerable testimonials could be quoted from observers in evidence of the superior mental powers of the apes. Hartman says of them that their intelligence sets them high above other mammals and remains that they certainly surpass all other animals in the scope of their rational faculty. It is scarcely necessary here to give extended examples of ape intelligence. Hundreds of instances are on record, many of them showing remarkable powers of reasoning for one of the lower animals. The ape, it is true, is not alone in its teachableness. Nearly all the domestic animals can be taught, the dog and the elephant to a considerable degree. And evidences of reasoning out some subject for themselves now and then appear in the domesticated species, but these are rare instances, not frequent acts as in the case of the apes. The apes, indeed, rarely need teaching. They observe and imitate to an extent far beyond that displayed by any others of the lower animals, and the more remarkable from the fact that in nearly every instance 
the animals concerned began life in the wild state and had none of the advantages of hereditary influence possessed by the domesticated dog and horse. Among the most interesting examples of spontaneous acts of intelligence of the ape tribe are those related by Romains in his Animal Intelligence of the doings of a Cebus monkey, which he kept for several months under close observation in his own house. Instead of selecting general examples of ape actions, we may cite some of the doings of this intelligent creature. The Cebus did not wait to be shown how to do things, but was an adept in devising ways to do them himself. He had the monkey love of mischief well developed, and not much of that was breakable came whole from his hands. When he could not break an egg cup by dashing it to the ground, he hammered it on the post of a brass bedstead until it was in fragments. In breaking a stick, he would pass it down between a heavy object and the wall and break it by hanging on its end. In destroying an article of dress, he would begin by carefully pulling out the threads and afterwards tear it to pieces with his teeth. His nuts he broke with a hammer precisely as a man would have done, and without being shown its use. Ridicule was not pleasant to him. He strongly resented being laughed at, and would throw anything within reach at his tormentor and with a skill and force not usual with monkeys. Taking the missile in both hands and standing erect, he would extend his long arms behind his back and hurl the article by bringing them forcibly forward. If any object he wanted was too far away to reach, he would draw it toward him with a stick. Failing in this, he was observed to throw a shawl back over his head and then fling it forward with all his strength, holding it by two corners. But when it fell over the object, he brought this within reach by drawing in the shawl. In his gyrations, the chain by which he was fastened often became twisted around some object. He would now examine it intently, pulling it in opposite ways with his fingers until he had discovered how the turns ran. This done, he would carefully reverse his motions until the chain was quite disentangled. The most striking act of intelligence told of this creature was his dealings with a hearth brush which fell into his hand and of which the handle screwed into the brush. It took him no long time to find out how to unscrew the handle. When this was achieved, he at once began to try and screw it in again. In doing so, he showed great ingenuity. At first, he put the wrong end of the handle into the hole and turned it round and round in the right direction for screwing. Finding this would not work, he took it out and tried the other end, always turning in the right direction. It was a difficult feat to perform as he had to turn the screw with both hands while the flexible bristles of the brush prevented it from remaining steady. To aid his operations, he now held the brush with one foot while turning with both hands. It was still difficult to make the first turn of the screw but he worked on with untiring perseverance until he got the thread to catch and then screwed it into the end. The remarkable thing was that he never tried to turn the handle in the wrong direction, but always screwed it from left to right, as if he knew that he must reverse the original motion. The feat accomplished, he repeated it, and continued to do so until he could perform it easily. Then he threw the brush aside apparently taking no more interest in that over which he had worked so persistently. No man could have devoted himself more earnestly to learn some new art and become more indifferent to it when once learned. These are only a few of the many acts of intelligence observed by Mr. Romains in the doings of this animal. They will suffice as examples of what we mean by spontaneous intelligence.
The Cebus did not need to be shown how to do things. It worked them out for itself much as a man would have done, performing acts of an intricacy far beyond any ever observed in other classes of animals in captivity. It may be said further that the displays of spontaneous intelligence shown by dogs, cats and other similar animals have usually been intended in some way for the advantage of the animal. Few or none are on record which indicate a mere desire to know without ulterior advantage, no persevering effort like that with the brush which is purely an instance of self-instruction. Examples of intelligence in this advanced character could be cited from observation of monkeys of various species. The anthropoid apes have not been brought to any large extent under observation, but are more notable for their intelligence in captivity. It is not easy to observe them in a state of nature, and nearly all we know is that the orang makes itself a nightly bed of branches broken off and carefully laid together, and is said to cover itself in bed with large leaves if the weather is wet. The chimpanzee has a similar habit, and the gorilla is said to build itself a nest in which the female and the young sleep, the old male resting at the foot of the tree, on guard against their dangerous foe, the leopard. It is the young animals of these species which are the most social and docile and most approach man in appearance. As they grow older, their specific characters become more marked, fierce and sullen as is the old gorilla. The young of this species is playful and affectionate in captivity and is given to mischievous tricks. The one that was kept for a time in Berlin showed much good nature, playfulness and intelligence, and some degree of monkey mischievousness. It was very cunning in carrying out its plans, particularly in stealing sugar, of which it was very fond. The chief examples of anthropoid intelligence are told of the chimpanzee, which has been most frequently kept in captivity. It is usually lively and good-tempered and is very teachable. Some of the stories of its intelligence may be apocryphal, as those told by Captain Grand Pre of a chimpanzee who performed all the duties of a sailor on board ship, and of one that would heat the oven for a baker and inform him when it was at the right temperature. But there are authenticated stories of chimpanzee intelligence which give it a high standing in this respect among the lower animals. The emotional nature of the ape is also highly developed. It displays an affection equal to that of the dog, and a sympathy surpassing that of any other animal below man. The feeling displayed by monkeys for others of their kind in pain is of the most affecting nature, and Brehm relates that in the monkeys of certain species kept under confinement by him in Africa. The grief of the females for the loss of their young was so intense as to cause their death. More than once, an ardent hunter has seen such examples of tender solicitude among monkeys for the wounded and of grief for the dead as to resolve never to fire at one of the race again. James Forbes, in his Oriental Memoirs, relates a striking instance of this kind. One of a shooting party had killed a female monkey in a banyan tree and carried it to his tent. Forty or fifty of the tribe soon gathered around the tent chattering furiously and threatening an attack from which they were only diverted by the display of the fowling piece, whose effects they seemed perfectly to understand. But while the others retreated, the leader of the group stood his ground, continuing his threatening chatter. Finding this to no avail, he came to the door of the tent, moaning sadly, and by his gestures seeming to beg for the dead body. When it was given, he took it sorrowfully up in his arms and carried it away to the waiting troop. That hunter never shot a monkey again. 
This deep feeling for the dead is probably not common among monkeys. The gibbon, for instance, is said to take no notice of the dead. It is, however, highly sympathetic to injured and sick companions, and this feeling seems common to all the apes. No human could show more tender care of wounded or hapless companions than has often been seen in members of this affectionate tribe of animals. Without giving further examples of the intelligence and sympathy of the apes, we may say that they possess in a marked degree the mental powers to which man owes so much, viz. observation and imitation. The ape is the most curious of the lower animals, that is, it possesses the faculty of observation in an unusual degree. What we call curiosity in the ape is the basic form of the characteristic which we call attention or observation in man. Its seeming great activity in the ape is what might naturally be expected in an observant animal when removed from its natural habitat to a location where all around it is new and strange. Man, under like circumstances, is as curious as the ape, while the latter in its native trees probably finds little to excite its special attention. In both man and the ape, it needs novelty to excite curiosity. Again, the ape is imitative in a high degree. This faculty also it does not share with the lower animals, but does with man, imitation being one of the methods by which he has attained his supremacy. Observation, imitation, education are the three levers in the development of the human intellect. The first two of these, the ape possesses in a marked degree. It is susceptible also to the last, being very teachable. Education certainly exists to some extent among the apes in their natural habitat, perhaps to as great an extent as it did in primitive man. In the latter case, it is doubtful if there was much that could be called designed education the young gaining their degree of knowledge by observing and imitating their elders. The same is certainly the case among the apes. We may reasonably ask what there is in the life and character of the apes to give them this mental superiority over the remaining lower animals. It is certainly not due to the arboreal life and powers of grasp of these animals, for in those respects they resemble the lemurs, which are greatly lacking in intelligence. Whether the monkeys emerged from the lemurs or the two groups developed side by side is a question as yet unsettled. At all events, they are closely similar in conditions of existence. Yet, while the monkeys are the most intelligent and teachable of animals, the lemurs are among the least intelligent of the mammalia. There is here a marked distinction which is evidently not due to difference of structure or habitat, and must have its origin in some other characteristic, such as difference in life habits. There is certainly nothing in the diet of the ape to develop intelligence. The frugivorous and herbivorous animals do not need cunning and shrewdness to anything like the extent necessary in carnivorous animals. They do not need to pursue or lie in wait for prey, and they escape from their enemies mainly through strength, speed, concealment or other physical powers or methods. Escape may occasionally develop mental alertness, but does not usually do so. Certainly, if the alert, watchful, suspicious habits of the apes are due to the requisite of avoiding dangerous enemies, we might naturally look for similar habits in the lemurs, which are similarly situated. And if we consider the wide distribution of the apes throughout the tropics of both hemispheres, and their great diversity in species and condition, It seems very unlikely that in all these localities their relations with other animals would be such as to develop the mental alertness which they so generally display. The fact appears to be that while this may be a cause, 
it is not a leading cause of mental development in animals and that we must seek elsewhere for the origin of animal intelligence research indeed leads us to examples of intelligence where we should least expect to find it among the mammalia we perceive one marked example in the beavers the only one in the great class of the rodents with their 900 or more of species but we must go still lower to the insects for the most striking example finding them alone in the ants the bees and the termites among the vast multitude of insect forms less marked instances appear in the elephants in some of the birds and in certain other gregarious animals from these examples and what is elsewhere known of animal intelligence one broad conclusion may be drawn that all the strikingly intelligent animals are strongly social in their habits and that no decided display of intelligence is to be found among solitary species this conclusion becomes almost a demonstration in the case of the ants and bees the ants for instance comprise hundreds of species spread over most of the world mainly social but occasionally solitary the social species while varying greatly in habit all display powers of intelligence and these so diversified as to indicate many separate lines of evolution the solitary ants on the contrary manifest no special intelligence and do not rise above the general insect level the same may be said of the bees the hive bee the most communal in habit shows the highest traits of intelligent activity the bees which form smaller groups and the social wasps stand at a lower level and the solitary bees and wasps sink to the ordinary insect plane we arrive at like conclusions from observation of the social termites or white ants some species of which are remarkable for their intelligent cooperation and division of duties examples similar in kind may be drawn from the vertebrates among the birds there are none more quick-witted than the social crows none with less display of intelligence than the solitary carnivorous species birds are rather gregarious than social there are few species whose association is above that of mere aggregation in flight those more distinctively social usually have special habits which indicate intelligence as in the often cited instances of their seemingly trying and executing delinquents among the carnivorous mammals the social dog or wolf tribe displays the intelligent habit of mutual aid the horses oxen deer and other gregarious hoofed animals have a degree of division of duties but their intelligence is of a lower grade than that of the dogs and the elephants on the whole it may be affirmed that the social habit is frequently accompanied by instances of special intelligence to which we find no counterpart among the solitary forms and that the highest manifestations of intelligence in the lower animals are found in those forms which possess communal habits as the ants bees termites and beavers one important characteristic of the communal animals is that they become mentally specialized they round up their powers build barriers of habits over which they cannot pass perform the same acts with such interminable iteration that what began as intellect sinks back into instinct each individual has fixed duties and is confined within a limited circle of acts whose scope it cannot pass or only to the minutest extent the non-communal social animals on the contrary are not thus restricted their intelligence is of a generalized character and is capable of developing in new channels none are tied down to special duties each possesses the full powers of all and they are thus more open to a continued growth of the intellect than the communal forms 
To this class belongs the ape. Its intelligence is general, not special, broadly capable of development, not narrowed and bound in by the limitation of certain fixed and special duties. The suggestions above offered point to three grades of community among animals, which may be designated the communal, the social and the solitary. Among these there are, of course, many stages of transition from one to the other. The specially communal, including the ants, bees, termites and beavers, are those in which there is almost a total loss of individuality, each member working for the good of the community as a unit, not for its personal advantage. The result consists of organised industries, division and specialisation of duties, a common home, food stock, etc. At a lower level in animal life, that of the hydroid polyps, communism has become so complete that the community has grown into an actual individual, the members not being free, but acting as organs of an aggregate mass, in which each performs some special duty for the good of the community. The social animals differ from the communal in that the individuality of the members is fully preserved. There is some measure of work for the group, some degree of mutual aid, some evidence of leadership and subordination, but these are confined to a few exgenesis of life, while in most of the details of existence each member of the group acts for itself. The solitary animals are those which do not form groups larger than that of the family and into whose life the principle of mutual aid outside the immediate family relations does not enter. Each acts for itself alone, and intercourse between the individuals of the species is greatly restricted. The advantages of social habits among animals are evident. There is excellent reason to believe that all animals, and especially such advanced forms as the vertebrates and the higher arthropods, have some power of mental development, some facility in devising new methods of action to meet new situations. Though their reasoning power may be small, it is not quite lacking, and many examples of the exercise of the faculty of thought could be cited if necessary. What we are here concerned with is the final result of such exercises of individual thought powers. In the case of the solitary forms, such new conceptions die with the individual though they may exert an influence on the development of the nervous system and aid in the hereditary transmission of more active brain powers, they are lost as special ideas, fail to be taken up and repeated by other members of the species. This is not the case with the social animals. Each of these has some faculty of observation and some tendency to imitation, and useful steps of advance made by individuals are likely to be observed and retained as general habits of the community. Anything of importance that is gained may be preserved by educative influences. The facility of mental communication between these creatures is perhaps much greater than is generally supposed, and acts of importance which are not directly observed might in many cases be transmitted through repetition for the benefit of the group. We know this to be the main agency in human progress. New ideas are of rare occurrence with man. Ideas of permanent value do not occur to 1%, perhaps not to 1 one-hundredth of 1% of civilised mankind. Yet few of such ideas are lost, and that which has proved of advantage to an individual soon becomes the common possession of a community. Among the lower animals, new and advantageous ideas are probably of exceedingly rare occurrence. When they do occur, their advantage to solitary forms is very slight, being that of minute steps of brain development and hereditary transmission of the same. To social forms, they are doubly advantageous, since while they tend to brain development, 
they may also be preserved in their original form and transmitted directly to members of the group. They are still more advantageous to the communal animals from the closer intercourse of these and their constant association in acts of mutual aid. But in the latter instance, their influence is usually exerted for the benefit of the community as a unit, while in the case of social animals, it is of advantage to the individual. The result of such a process of evolution in the case of the communal animals is a strict specialism. A series of acts of advantage to the community are slowly developed and are repeated so frequently that they become instinctive, while a fixed circle of duties arises through whose link it is almost impossible to break. There is no reason to believe that the individual initiative is wanting. The varied round of duties of a community of ants, for instance, could only have arisen through step after step of progress from the condition of the solitary ants. If such steps have been made, others may be made, and are likely to be preserved if found advantageous. The ant individual preserves its powers of observation and thought and may initiate new processes, but most of the ant communities are already so excellently adapted to the conditions of their life as to leave little opportunity for improvement, so that the adoption of new and advantageous habits are to be exceedingly rare. It is an interesting fact that communalism has been confined to animals of comparatively low organisation. The most complete examples of it exist in the polyps and some other low forms in which each community has become a compound individual, the members remaining attached to the parent stock. The next higher examples to be met are the frequently cited ants and bees, belonging to the lowly organised class of arthropoda, yet through the advantage of association and mutual aid, developing actions and habits only found elsewhere in the human race. The only example among vertebrates is that of the beavers, members of the lower order of rodents. With these, the results are less varied and intricate than with the ants, in accordance with the much smaller size of the community. All the higher vertebrates are either social or solitary in habit, and among them, the narrow specialism of the communal forms does not exist. Each individual works in large measure for itself. Its mental powers remain generalised, and it is not tied down to the performance of a series of fixed hereditary acts from which escape is well-nigh impossible. Of the social animals, man presents the most complete type, and the one from which we can best deduce the conditions of the class. A human community is made up of individuals of many degrees of intellectual ability, the mass remaining at a low level, the few attaining a high level. Yet those of high powers of intellect set the standard for the whole, teach the lower either by precept or example, and aid effectively in advancing the standard of the community. A rope or chain is said to be as weak as its weakest part. A human community, on the contrary, may be said to be as strong as its strongest part. The standing of the whole is dependent upon the thoughts and acts of the few, from whom the general mass receive new ideas and gain new habits. The existing intellectual and industrial position of mankind is very largely a result of ideas evolved by individuals age after age and preserved as the mental property of the whole. Destroy the books and works of art and industry of any community, cut off its intellectual leaders, remove from the general mind the results of education and it would at once fall back to a low level and be obliged to begin again its slow climb upward. The intellectual standing of any civilised nation depends upon two things, the preservation in books, in memory and in works of art and industry of the ideas of ancient workers and thinkers, 
and the mental activity of living thinkers and inventors whose work takes its start from this standpoint of stored-up thought. Rob any community of all its basic ideas and it would quickly retrograde to a primitive condition of thought and organisation from which it might need many centuries to emerge. It has been said above that man is the highest example of the social animal. While that is the truth, it is not the whole truth. He is at the same time the highest example of the communal animal, mutual aid, organisation into strictly rounded communities, labour for the good of the whole, is as declared in him as in the most developed community of the ants, and we admire the work of the latter simply because they repeat at a lower level the work of man. In truth, in man we have a splendid example of the existence of the individual initiative in connection with the communal organisation. Specialism exists in a hundred forms. Some nations have been tied down by it to conditions almost as fixed as those of the ants. But generalism exists in as full a measure. New ideas are constantly modifying or replacing the old, and the communism of man is a progressive one, steadily borne upward on the wings of new ideas. Individual thought has the fullest swing, and it is to the system of special reward for useful thought and act that man owes much of his great advance. On the other hand, reward without useful service has been one of the leading agencies that have acted to check human progress. The lower animals do not possess the advantage of man in his power of preserving the thoughts and products of the past as a foundation for new steps of progress. Memory may aid them to a slight degree, but they have no special means of recording useful ideas. This cannot fairly be said of the communal forms, which possess the result of the labours of former generations as useful object lessons. But in the higher animals, no means exist for the permanent preservation of ideas, and each step of progress must be due to the direct influence of living individuals and the indirect result of natural selection. This is one cause of the slow mental advance of the lower animals. A second is the deficiency in educational influences, which have had so much to do with human progress. Education is not quite wanting in the brute creation. There are many instances on record of instruction given by the adults to the young, but this agency is in its embryo stage, and its influence must be small. Again, each tribe of lower animals is apt to fall into a fixed circle of life act, to become so closely adapted to some situation or condition that any change of habits would be likely to prove detrimental. This is a state of affairs tending to produce stagnation and vigorously to check advance. Many instances of this could be cited from human history, while it is the common condition with the animals below man. To return to the apes, the considerations above taken lead to the conclusion that it is chiefly, if not solely, to their social habits that they owe their mental quickness. While only in minor traits communal, they are eminently social and have doubtless derived great advantage from this. The lemurs, which share their habitat and resemble them in organisation, are markedly unsocial and are as mentally dull as the apes are mentally quick. Possibly, the thought powers of the apes once set in train, there may have been something in the exgenesis of arboreal life that quickened their powers of observation but we are constrained to believe that the main influence to which they owe their development is that of social habits, in which they stand at a high, if not the highest level, among the distinctly social animals. The thought capacities of the ape intellect are general, not special. The mind of these animals remains free and capable of new thought in new situations, 
It is fully alive to the needs and dangers of arboreal life and advances no further in its native habitat because there is nothing more of importance to be learned. But while fixed, it is not stagnant. When the ape is taken from its native woods and put among the many new conditions arising on shipboard and in human habitations, we quickly perceive indications of its mental alertness. Its faculties of observation and imitation are actively exercised, and new habits and conceptions are quickly gained. Could the apes be made to breed freely in captivity so that a domestic race comparable to that of the dogs could be obtained? Their mental powers might, perhaps, be cultivated to an extraordinary degree, yielding instances of thought approaching that of man. The ape is especially notable for its tendency to attempt new acts of itself, not waiting to be taught as in the case of other domesticated animals. In short, it seems by all odds to be the animal best fitted mentally to serve as the basis of a high intellectual development, as it is the best fitted physically to change from the attitude of the quadruped to that of the biped. The anthropoid apes, in general, manifest a reversion from the social towards the solitary state, the condition reaching its ultimate in the orang, which is one of the most solitary of animals. The smaller forms are the most social, the gibbons being decidedly so. There is very good reason to believe that the man-ape was highly social, if we may judge from what we find in all races of men, and all grades from the savage to the civilised. This animal was thus in a position to avail itself of all the advantages of the social habit, and to gain the mental development thence arising. How long ago it was when it left the trees and made its home upon the ground, it is impossible to say. It may have been as far back as the early Pliocene or the late Miocene period, or even earlier. As yet, its brain was probably no more developed than in the case of the other anthropoids, perhaps less so than in the existing species. But in its new habitat, it was exposed to a series of novel conditions that must have exerted a healthful and stimulating influence upon its mind. If it had remained in the trees, we should probably today have only a man-ape still. Leaving their safe shelter for the ground, it became exposed to new dangers and was forced to fit itself to fresh conditions. Prowling carnivorous animals haunted its new place of residence, and these it had to avoid by speed or alertness of motion, or combat them by strength and use of weapons. The carnivorous tastes which it had in all probability gained made it a creature of the chase, pursuing swift animals, capturing them by fleetness or stratagem, or bringing them down with the aid of clubs and missiles. Such a new series of duties and dangers could not fail to exert a vigorous influence upon a brain already quick of thought and susceptible to fresh impressions, and we may well conceive that the man-ape then entered upon a new and rapid phase of mental progress, its brain developing in powers and growing in dimensions as it slowly became adapted to its new situation and grew able to cope with fresh demands and critical exgenesis. There is still another influence which has had its share, perhaps a very prominent share, in the intellectual development of animals, yet which no writer seems to have considered from this point of view. The probable effect of this influence needs to be taken into account in conclusion of this section of our subject. It is that of the comparative agency of the senses in the development of the mind and the effects likely to arise from the dominance of some one of the senses. In the lowest animals, touch was the predominant, if not the only sense, taste perhaps being associated with it. But these senses, which demand actual contact with objects, 
obviously could give none but the narrowest conception of the conditions of nature. The other senses, sight, hearing and smell, give intimations of the existence and conditions of more or less distinct objects and their development greatly widen the scope of outreach in animals and must have exerted a powerful influence upon the growth of mental conditions. It need scarcely be said that the sense which gives the fullest and most extended information about existing things is necessarily the one that acts most effectively upon the mind, and that this sense is that of sight. Hearing and smell yield us information concerning certain local conditions of objects, but sight extends to the limits of the universe, while in regard to near objects it has the advantage of being practically instantaneous in action and much fuller in the information it conveys. Sight, therefore, is evidently the most important of the senses, so far as the broadening of the mental powers is concerned, and many animal in which it is predominant must possess a great advantage in this respect over those species controlled to any great degree by one of the lower senses. It may be said here that sight only slowly gained dominance in animal life, though the eye, as an organ of vision, is found at a low level in the animate scale, the indications are that it long played a subordinate part and has gained its full prominence only in man. During long ages, life was confined to the sea, hosts of beings dwelling in the semi-obscurity of the underwaters, and great numbers at too great a depth for light to reach them. To vast multitudes of these, sight was partly or completely useless. The same may be said of hearing, the underwater habitat being nearly or completely a soundless one. The only one of the higher senses likely to be of general use to these oceanic forms is that of smell. It may be that their knowledge of distinct objects was mainly gained through sensitiveness to odours. Of invertebrate land animals, the same must be said. The land mollusks and the great order of insects and other land arthropods only to a minor extent dwell in the open light. Very many species haunt the semi-obscurity of trees or groves, hide among the grasses, lurk under bark, sticks and stones, or dwell through most of their lives underground. Hosts of others are nocturnal. To only a small percentage of insects can sight be of any great utility, while hearing seems also to be of slight importance. Smell is probably the principal sense through which these animals gain information of distant objects. There is existing evidence that the sense of smell in some insects is remarkably acute, the imprisoned female of certain nocturnal species, for instance, will attract the males from a comparatively immense distance, under conditions in which neither sight nor hearing could have been brought into play. The emission of odours and acute sensibility to them is the only presumable agency at work in those instances. As regards the most intelligent of the insects, the ants and the termites, the former are largely subterranean, the latter not only subterranean, but blind. In one case, sight can play only a minor part. In the other, it plays no part at all. Touch and smell seem to be the dominant senses in these animals, and the degree of intelligence they display shows of how high a development these senses are susceptible. Yet the intelligence arising from them must necessarily be local and limited in its application. It cannot yield the breadth of information and degree of mental development possible under the dominance of sight. In the vertebrates, we find a fully developed and broadly capable organ of vision, and it might be hastily assumed that in those animals sight is the dominant sense. But there are numerous facts which lead to a different conclusion. 
Many of the vertebrates are nocturnal. Many dwell in obscure situations. Many in the total darkness of caverns, underground tunnels and excavations, or the ocean's depths. To all these, sight must be of secondary importance. Hearing also can be of no superior value, and the dominant sense must be that of smell. In the bats, there would appear to be a remarkable acute power of touch, if we may judge from the facility with which they can avoid obstacles at full flight after their eyes have been removed. It might, however, be supposed that in the higher land vertebrates, sight is predominant, and that the diurnal mammals depend principally upon their eyes for their knowledge of nature. But there are facts which throw doubt upon this supposition. These facts are of two kinds, external and internal. That the quadrupeds in general are highly sensitive to odours is well known, and also that they trust very largely to the sense of smell. Hunters are abundantly aware of this, and have to be quite as careful to avoid being smelt by their game as to avoid being seen. We have abundant evidence of the remarkable acuteness of this sense in so high an animal as the dog, which can follow its prey for miles by scent alone, and can distinguish the odours, not only of different species, but of different individuals, being capable of following the trail of one person amid the tracks of numerous others. The internal evidence of this fact is equally significant. In the vertebrates, in general, the olfactory lobe of the brain is largely developed, much exceeding in the size of the lobe of the optic nerve. It forms the anterior portion of the cerebrum, and in many instances constitutes a large section of that organ being marked off from it by only a slight surface depression. If we can fairly judge then, by anatomical evidence, the sense of smell plays a very prominent part in the life of all the lower vertebrates. If we take our domestic animals as an example, the olfactory lobe of the horse is considerably larger than that of man, though the brain as a whole is very much smaller, so that, comparatively, this organ constitutes a much larger portion of the total brain. The other domestic animals yield similar evidence of the great activity of the sense of smell. While there is no doubt that sight is an active sense in all the higher quadrupeds, it evidently divides this activity with smell to a much greater degree than is the case with man, in whom smell plays a minor part, sight a major part among the organs of sense. This fact shows its effect in the comparative mental development of man and the lower animals. Man, depending so largely on vision, gains the broadest conception of the conditions of nature, with a consequent great expansion of the intellect. The quadrupeds, depending to a considerable degree upon smell for their conceptions of nature, are much narrower in their range of information and lower in their mental development. As regards the ape family, it occupies a position between man and the quadrupeds, and its intellectual activity may well be due in great measure to an increased trust in sight and a decreased trust in smell, in gaining its conception of nature. The question may arise, why, if sight has this superiority over smell, did it not long since gain predominance and relegate smell to a minor position? It may be answered that this superiority of sight is not complete. In one particular, this sense is inferior to smell. The leading agency in the development of the sense organs of animals has been the struggle for existence, including escape from enemies, and the perception of food animals or material. In these processes, acuteness of smell plays a very important part. It has, moreover, the advantage of gathering information from all directions, while sight is very limited in its range. 
the eye is so subject to injury that its multiplication over the body would be rather disadvantageous than otherwise while localized as it is a movement of the head is necessary to any breadth of vision and the whole body must rotate to bring the complete horizon under observation it seems evident from these considerations that sight is much inferior to smell in the timely perception of many forms of danger light comes in straight lines only and a movement of the body is necessary to perceive perils lying outside these lines odors on the contrary spread in all directions and make themselves manifest from the rear as well as the front in all probability this fact has had much to do with the continued dependence of animals on smell in fishes and reptiles a full sweep of vision is so slowly gained that some more active sentinel sense is requisite to safety in mammals the head rotates more easily but valuable time is lost in the rotation of the whole body these animals therefore depend on both sight and smell in some cases equally in some more fully on one or the other of these senses when we reach the semi-upright ape we have to do with a form capable of turning the body and observing the whole surrounding circle of objects more quickly and readily than any quadruped as a result these animals have grown to depend more fully on vision and less on smell than the quadrupeds finally in fully erect man the power of quick turning and alert observation of the whole circle of the horizon reaches its ultimate and in man sight has become in a large degree the dominant sense and smell has fallen to a minor place with this change in the relations of the senses has come a change in the degree of mental development it is highly probable that the dependence of the apes on vision instead of smell has had much to do with their mental activity quickness of observation and active curiosity in man there can be no question that it has played a great part in the rapid development of his intellectual powers and in the extraordinary breadth of his conception of nature as compared with that of the lower animals while hearing and smell advise us of neighbouring conditions only and have their chief utility as aids to the preservation of existence sight makes us aware of the conditions of nature in remote localities extending far beyond the limits of the earth while this sense plays its part as one of the protective agencies it is still more useful as an agent in the acquisition of knowledge in general and has much to do with the development of the intellectual faculties we may look therefore upon the increasing dominance of the sense of sight as a leading agency in the making of man as a thinking being and may ascribe to this in a considerable measure the thirst for information and faculty of imitation so marked in the apes end of chapter six the development of intelligence